All right. Thank you so much, worship team. And once again, it's really good to see all of you all here. And if you're uh, listening online later to this, we're grateful to have you listening later. You found us in part four of a seven-part series that we're calling Meaningful. Uh, this series is designed to do kind of one thing, and that is to tap into what Moses wrote about in Psalm 90, which is, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And our desire is that we can help in some way, shape, and form over the next several weeks infuse a little bit of wisdom into our hearts with what we see in this series. We're using the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes as our jumping off point in this series. Uh, for those who are new to uh, this series, uh, you may know that, um, I want you to know that I think that there are two different people who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, traditionally, many conservatives will say that Solomon wrote the book. If you want to hear my full argument on where I'm coming down on who wrote this book, listen to message one. But I'll just to summarize quickly, I believe there are two authors. One is a teacher who wrote the majority of the book. I'm going to call that person Q, which is Hebrew for Kohole. And then there's a frame author, someone who framed up the book at the beginning and the end. And that the teacher, Q, is a wise but pessimistic sage who is governed by this view that we're all going to die. And because we're all going to die, life is basically meaningless. So I've likened it to being on the Titanic and knowing that you've hit the iceberg and the, the ship is starting to list just enough where your chair on the deck of the ship is slowly sliding into the cold, dark waters. And in the middle of your slide into the sea, this is where the author Q says, meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. Who cares what you do in that moment? It almost doesn't matter at all because you know what? You're going to die soon, so who cares? And this is kind of why he writes from the perspective that he does. And the book begins, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And he talks about the waters filling, the, the rivers filling, the oceans and never being full, the sun rising and setting, it all coming back over again. And at the end of the day, we're all going to slide into the sea, so who cares what you do? Now, what I've said is that I think he's incomplete. There's still wisdom in that, but I think he's incomplete. And I believe that for the Christian, that the resurrection is the big idea that changes everything. That what if, yes, you're still going to die, and I'm still going to die, and we're going to slide into the water, if you will, and die. But what if that's not the end? Like, what if that's not the end? If that's not the end, and if there's life after that, then everything that you do in this life actually does matter, and actually does have meaning. And that's what I believe the frame author is saying. Now, this, this author, Q is uh, writing, and he's compiling a bunch of wisdom from a bunch of different perspectives. It's kind of like wisdom that you'd want to give to your son or your daughter as they're growing up and going out of the home. And he's collecting a whole host of topics or ideas that he finds important to write about. And so what I've said is that this idea of the resurrection changes everything. And we have a, a six-part uh, outline that we've been talking through so far that that, that is the resurrection, changes everything. And week one, we looked at changes everything about what is wise versus unwise. And week two, we talked about how we see our work. Today, we're going to talk about money and wealth. Next week, oppression and injustice. The week after that, about our reputations. And finally, about knowing God's will and what that is. Okay? So that is where we've been um, so far, this week um, on money and wealth accumulation comes on the heels of this idea of work that we talked about last week. Last week we talked about work, and I asked the question to you, in your work, are you, and, and we use this image of, of people working in a stone quarry, are you cutting a stone, making a living, or building a cathedral with the work that you do? And with the building cathedral view, you realize that the work that you do is going to outlive you, 
And the legacy of the work that you live will also outlive you. That there's a different kind of vision we can have to a work based on the resurrection and the hope of it. Now, this week we want to talk about money and wealth accumulation. Okay, now this is a little funny topic, but this is one of the main topics that Q writes about. Uh, as I read through the book of Ecclesiastes in preparation for this, there were several topics, several things that he kept coming back to and back to and back to and back to. Work was one of them, wisdom was one of them, but wealth, accumulation, inheritance, that was another thing that he kept coming back to. And it's so critical for us to understand. It is kind of confusing, if we're honest, if we're willing to back up a little bit from what our assumptions are about wealth and uh, money and wealth accumulation. There's some real questions that we have to ask. If you're a Christian, you have to ask about how in the world should I handle the things that I've been given? And how should I view wealth and its accumulation? Some of us have come from the perspective of WWJD. If you're a Christian, you know that stands for what would Jesus do? And we filter everything through the grid of, well, what would he do? And some of you are familiar with Jesus' statements, a statement like this. He'll say, you know what? The foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In which we'd say, you know what? I'm not sure I'd buy into poverty theology, but I don't need the nicest place. I mean, Jesus didn't even have a place that he could call his own. He didn't leave the earth with a big savings account. Therefore, it's okay that I don't have much stuff, and therefore it might even be godly that I don't acquire many things. And then some of us who are thinking bigger picture and theologically will go back to the Old Testament and think of someone like Solomon. And you realize that, you know what, Solomon, he spent approximately, imagine this, 20 years, 20 years, building both the temple and his house. Not just him, but he employed literally hundreds of people hundreds of people, full-time, for 20 years to build the temple and his palace. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see that being condemned as ostentatious or as too much. Who would put that kind of wealth into a place like that? Solomon is not condemned for his wealth accumulation. But then we go back to the New Testament, we're like, wait, wait, that doesn't seem right. Maybe I, I shouldn't like, aim to build a palace for myself. And Didn't Jesus somewhere talk to his disciples and say, hey, as you go out, like, just take the basic provisions with you and, and only have enough, basically, food and all that for one day. And, and as you go to spread my message, you know, you should just go into homes that will take you. And if they don't take you and provide you shelter and food, then shake the dust off your sandals and move on. In other words, don't trust in the things of this world. Like, in other words, don't accumulate wealth. I mean, that kind of seems to be Jesus' thing. I'm like, okay, well, isn't there also in the Old Testament a man named Job, who was like the wealthiest man in the world at the time, right? And, and isn't he like held up? by God himself as the most righteous man at the same time as being the most wealthy man? So I'm a little confused. Like, should I WWJD and like do what Jesus did and not have a place to live and just have enough food for one night? Or, or is it okay to accumulate wealth? And can I be righteous and very wealthy at the same time? What do I do with this? And how do I process this? Another question is, what do I do as an American, not just a Christian? We have to have that conversation. As an American, we have a unique perspective on wealth and its accumulation. If you have a chance to talk more with Don and Tabitha and the people that they're ministering to in Cambodia, you'll have a different perspective on the wealth that we have. 
Same with Matt and Julie Walsh in Burkina. We'll have a different perspective on the things that we have. The things that you and I have now, we might say, we would never put the category of wealth behind it. But when we talk to someone else who lives in another part of the world, we're like, whoa, you've had this experience. Man, I'm wealthy. I'm wealthy. Man, what do I have? The Washington Post wrote an article. There was an article in the Washington Post in March of this year in which essentially the, the gist of the article is um, Americans believe that you're wealthy if you have more money than they do. So, in other words, if you have just more than I do, then you're wealthy. Of course, you don't think you're wealthy because of someone who has more money than you, right? And we know that that is the tendency that wealth is relative. And none of us think we're really living high off the hog because there's always somebody who has more. And that's our tendency to think that way. Now, we have to ask this question as well. Would it be a healthy society if only non-Christians had great wealth? Would that be a balanced world? Would God's kingdom be able to be advanced as well if Christians were all living in poverty and no Christians had wealth and had the ability to distribute it? And I have to say, it's probably going to be an imbalanced society if that were the case. It would just, at a functional, practical level, that doesn't seem wise. That Christians should write off wealth accumulation because of the dangers that come with loving money. That that doesn't seem wise. And so what do we do as people who want to follow God and who live in this world and are kind of in the middle of accumulating things and trying not to and not being sure, and so what we'll do is we'll just try to live a little bit less than whoever we think is living more than we, they should. Oh, well, they bought a new car this year. Well, I didn't. They're wealthy. I'm living right. Man, they buy more stuff. They're doing it wrong. I'm doing it right. At least I can compare myself to others and realize there's somebody else who seems to be living more ostentatiously than me, therefore I'm okay. We're not going to put it in those terms, but by and large in practice, that's often what we can fall into. If we don't have a critical grid or lens to think through, really, how should we think about the things that we have? And I want to offer to you one question, one question that I think will help you in your entire life think through how should I deal with money and wealth accumulation? And I want to get to that toward the end of the message today. But it's one question that I think will help guide you in this issue of what should someone who wants to follow God and honor Christ do with the issue of money and wealth accumulation. To get there, I want to take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. There's a Bible near you in the pew around you. uh, And you'll find Ecclesiastes right after the Proverbs, which is right after the Psalms. So you can go right in the middle of your Bible and find the Psalms and hit it over to Proverbs and then uh, jump over to Ecclesiastes, all right? Ecclesiastes 5, uh, and by the way, did I, I don't know if I said this, if you don't own a Bible and you're picking up one of our pew Bibles, that's our gift to you this morning. We'd be glad to just let you have that and take that with you and read that uh, on your way, all right? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 8, is where we're going to go this morning through verse 20. There are, there are many passages in Ecclesiastes related to wealth and its accumulation. I just want to focus on one here this morning. And so Q is writing here, I believe, and he says this, If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits 
from the fields. Now let's pause it here. At the beginning, Q is writing about oppression, and he's also writing about what we tend to know and call in our language the, the gap between the one percenters and the rest of the world. Okay? This is the division between the upper class and the middle or lower class. And this is the growing divide, as we might call it in our economic system, the growing divide between even the middle class and the lower class or the middle class and the upper class. And you see it happening right here. What he's saying is, if you see poor oppressed in a district, don't be surprised. The reason is, the reason you shouldn't be surprised is that because officials feel the pressure from their bosses to get the right amount of taxes, to deliver on the kind of goods that their bosses want. And so officials who are corrupt have a tendency to look up instead of down. Officials who are corrupt look up and try to please someone above them rather than looking down and seeing how they can serve the people with them. And what that creates is a need to serve the person up rather than the opportunity to serve the people down. And what that does is it creates oppression, it creates a divide, a growing gap between those who are less fortunate and those who are more fortunate. And Q is just saying, this happens. Don't be surprised at the growing divide between the less fortunate and the more fortunate because those who are corrupt in power are never going to be looking at the right thing, which is how do I serve people rather than serve the people above me? Don't be surprised when that happens. And then he says in verse 10, and here's why. Whoever loves money never has money enough. And isn't that true? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. And isn't that true? If we could stop it, if we could pause it, and we could back up our life 10 years, for some of you this morning, you are making more money now than you were 10 years ago, even last year, even five years ago. And you may have said that the 10-year-ago self, man, if I were making X number of dollars, I can't imagine how satisfied I would be. And yet here you are 10 years later, five years later, and you're making X amount of dollars, and you're like, man, I just wish I was making X plus X amount of dollars. Because money never solves money issues. The love of money doesn't create an end game. What Q is emphasizing here is, is this, that it's not so much that wealth accumulation is a bad thing. It's when, when wealth accumulation becomes the end game, we have a categorical problem. When the end game is I need to accumulate more things, that is when we enter the death spiral. That is where life begins to unravel. Whoever loves money never has money enough. That is the crux of the problem. Now, he continues in verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Now, this is a great question that Q asks in verse 11. Look at, look at the, um, the second full sentence there. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? If I were to ask you this question, would you rather have more money or less money than you have now? Don't answer that, okay? Most people would think I'm a fool for even asking the question because the answer is so obvious. Of course you'd rather have less money than you have right now. Of course everyone would say, you know what, I would rather have more money. If you're asking, sure, I'd rather have more than I have right now. And Q is asking this, and it's such an interesting question because our assumption is, of course, of course we would be better off if we had just a little bit more. 
That is just our assumption. We don't even think about whether that's logical or whether it's right or even whether it's practical. We just assume it to be true. Of course I would want a little bit more. But Q asks the question that we suppose is true. He says, what benefit is it actually to you? There it is. What benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? What if you could have more stuff? He's saying, you know what? Suppose you could. Would it actually help you? Now, we would think, of course it would. Well, maybe I don't know, but I'm willing to try. Give me more money and we'll see what happens, all right? And Q's asking, what benefit, is, what benefit actually is it to you? And Because he goes on to say this in verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. You see what he's saying? He's saying, here's, here's the problem with wealth. When you accumulate things, then you worry about the things that you accumulate. And then you worry about maintaining the things that you accumulate. And you worry about people stealing the things that you accumulate. And then you have to buy insurance on the things that you accumulate and wonder if the insurance that you bought is going to cover the things that you bought in every possible scenario of what could possibly damage your stuff. Right? And so what benefit is it, he asks, it's a fair question, what benefit is it to continue the game? of accumulation, of wealth accumulation. What benefit is it? Because the wealthy, as he'll say, they can't sleep at night. But the, the laborer, who neither worries about the possessions or what he's going to eat, puts in a hard day of work, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning, there we go. Oop, up, down, up, down. Whose life is better? Whose life is better? The assumption is, well, of course, the one who owns it all, his life is better, really. And Q digs under a little bit of our base assumptions. Of course it would be better to be the owner than the one who works for it. Really? Really? Does it really benefit you? Does it really get you down the road of where you want to go? It's a fair question. And then he adds this in verse 14, as I read here. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, wealth lost of some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Do you see his assumption there? When he has a son, there's nothing left for him? He considers that a grievous evil. He considers that a real problem. In other words, the assumption is it is right for you to have a little bit of wealth, a little bit of inheritance at least, to pass on to the next generation. That would be good. And he said it's actually a bad thing if you don't have that. And so now, Q, I'm confused. Is it good to have something or good not to have something? What are you saying? Because you're saying it's a bad thing not to have an inheritance, but then if we accumulate too much, worry about it? What are you teaching? I'm confused. He goes on in verse 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And then he asks the question that he asks throughout the entire book. And what does he gain? Again, the question of how do you get ahead in life. What does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And then verse 18 kicks in. And this is one of those carpe diem sections in the book that has seized the day. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given him. For this is his lot. 
Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possession and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. In other words, as I said last week, if, if you are on the deck of the Titanic and you are sinking into the cold, dark water and someone hands you a piece of cake and you're able to enjoy that cake as you're plummeting to your death, that is a gift from God. Enjoy the moment that you have because shortly you will die. And that's essentially what he's saying here again. If you are able to enjoy the things that you have while you are ticking the clock down until you die, that's a gift from God because we're all heading to the cold, dark water. Have a great day. I mean, that, that's kind of the way Q is. And that's his answer. Again, that's his answer to wealth accumulation. If you can enjoy the things that you have while you're here, do it. Now, I think that there is something incomplete about this. Part of the problem is this. This view can lead toward what we call hedonism. Okay? Hedonism. I think you know what that is. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. In other words, if this is all we have, why mess around? I mean, live it up, baby. I mean, let's go, right? I mean, let's, let's put ourselves in debt. Who cares? I mean, who cares if you get in debt? Who cares if you live a wild life? Who really cares? If this is it, man, what are we messing around for? Let's live. Now, let's just be done with barriers. Let's just, man, let's just roll. Like, let's go. And it can lead into this hedonistic, that is, life is all about now and today worldview. So I take the teaching of Q, right, and I put it into a viewpoint that reminds me that this is not all there is to the world, that Jesus' teaching and the reality of the resurrection changes everything about how I see, even how I see wealth accumulation. So I want to read a parable to you. You can turn there if you want, but it's in Luke chapter 12 in the New Testament. Jesus is um, being asked some questions, and he's giving an answer, and in his answer he tells a story that helps us get to this one question that I think will help you and I know will help me as we continue to process how should we handle wealth and the stuff that we have. So in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, here's the, the account. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out, be on guard, on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And here's Jesus' teaching. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. And this is how things will be in this parable for those who have possessions but are not rich toward God. 
In another instance, Jesus was asked this question by a lawyer, a teacher of the law. And the lawyer asked him, and you, you know the story because it leads to one of the greatest parables ever told. In Luke chapter 10, and the, the teacher of the law comes and says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know, what, what is it you know, that I must do to inherit eternal life is basically what he's asking. And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? Well, how do you read it? And the teacher answers, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered wise, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. And then the teacher of the law asks, well, who is my neighbor? And that leads into Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. The story of being neighborly, not just of being a neighbor. And Jesus answers and he understands the two greatest things to do. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. As he's leaving the planet, as Jesus is leaving earth, he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Love one another. This parable of the, the rich landowner who has all these things, his perspective is on how can I take care of myself for the days to come. I, I know, I'm set. I'll, I'll just build bigger barns. And Jesus is like, tells a story from God's perspective, you fool, tonight your very life will be demanded from you. Why? Jesus says, because this is how it will be for anyone who builds up things for themselves but isn't rich toward God. And here's the issue, right? Here's the issue. Here's, here's the struggle. And here's the temptation with money. And you and I both know this. That the, the temptation of money is money is going to draw you to say, come on, fall in love with me. Fall in love with the accumulation of me. Fall in love with the comforts that I can give to you. Fall in love with the ease that I can provide for you. Fall in love with the work that you give to get more of me. And I can deliver to you what you want. You don't want to worry about paying the rent anymore. You don't want to worry about your children's education. You don't want to worry about your health bills. You don't want to worry about where you're going to go on vacation, how you're going to deal with any kind of sickness. You don't want to worry about that. Come on. You just get a little bit more of me and fall in love with me. Q writes in Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has money enough. And so here's the question for me. And, and I hope this question is helpful for you. But here's the question for me that to me cuts into this question of how should a Christian handle their stuff? How should a Christian handle their wealth? Do we WWJD it and live like we're a fox or a bird of the air with nothing? Do we just go out without shelter and food hoping that people take care of us? Is it okay to be like Solomon or Job who are extremely, extremely wealthy? The kind of wealth that you and I will likely never experience. And what is it that the Christian should do? And here's a question that I think no matter what stage of life you're in, if you will apply this question to how you see your stuff, it will help you put all that aside and help you with clarity and direction on how you handle your stuff. It's a simple question, but it comes down, in my opinion, to the heart of the matter. It's a simple question here. How does love govern my wealth? How does love govern my wealth? How does the love for God and the love for others govern how I see my stuff? How does love govern my wealth? Think about it from the smallest person to the oldest. It's easier to see it with small children first. Any of you who had children, who are children, or who are watching little children know the struggle for little children to share their toys. Can you imagine one day you walking into the bedroom of your grandchild or your child or someone that you're watching and seeing a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old 
just loving to share everything in that room with one another, kind of falling over each other, saying, how can I give this to you? No, you haven't had enough time to play with my favorite toy. Let me give it to you longer. You know, that happens and you know what you're going to do. You're going to put that baby on Instagram or Facebook and say, whoa, take it in the moment because this never happens, right? Because you're going to be like, this is amazing that this happens. Or you're going to feel this is a moment of maybe I haven't ruined my children's life as a parent. Maybe there is a God in the universe because the children are sharing their toys. But you know what's happening in that moment. Love is governing the wealth of those children. The wealth of those children might only be a matchbox car. It might only be a Lego set. It might only be the dolls that they're sharing. They have stuff. But we see that how does love govern my stuff? Can you imagine a world where little children are asking that question? Not, do I get it first? Whose is it? How much time have you had? In other words, what are my rights? But rather, how can love govern the things that I have. Now, it gets harder as we get older because it gets a little more personal. For the young adults in here, for those who are starting off with life, getting married, starting to have children, creating a family, I get the struggle that you're in. The push to pay off college, to pay for college, to save for this, to save for that. You're starting a business and you have to pay back the the loan that you have for the equipment that you have to do the job that you have, and you are working hard. You have ambitions to save. You have ambitions to buy a house, to to be able to pay for rent payments. You have ambitions for all these things, to maybe set aside a little bit for the kids' college education and, and all that comes with that, and you're constantly feeling that pinch and that pressure to work hard, to gain things. And I think there's something valuable and godly in there that drives us to work well and to work hard, but to do more than just go make a living, but to build a cathedral. And part of that cathedral living, I believe, is asking this question, even in the middle of that kind of life, where you are tight, tight, tight on the budget, that you're not even making budget, to ask the question, how does love, my love for God and my love for others, govern my wealth? And you may never say, well, I don't have wealth. Yes, yes, you do. You, you have stuff. How does love govern my stuff? What is it that I could do without so that someone else can have a little bit more. What is it that I, can, I think I can't do without? How can love govern my stuff? Not just love for me, but love for others and love for God. It's a tough season of life. I get that, but here's what you know already. That habits never start later. They need to start now. Good habits don't start when you're 5, 10, 20 years older. They start now. You know, you're a business owner or a business leader and you have employees. How does love govern the bottom line of your business? How does it govern what your company is about? How does it help you see? I'm, I'm bringing employees in here not just to allow them to make a living and to increase my bottom line, but how does my love for these employees govern how wealth is distributed in my company? And how does my love for others in this community govern how my bottom line is spread through this community? That my business is not just a benefit to me, but to the people all around me. Not only my employees, but the people that I work with. If you're in the retired age, has there ever been a better time for you to ask this question? How can love govern my wealth? How can love govern the stuff that you've worked a lifetime to gather? You know, all the things that you're hoping to do with, with your spouse or your friends or whatever that you've know, been looking forward to doing and you're finally off of work now and you can do that. How does love govern how you use the things that God has allowed you to accumulate? 
Who is it that you can take with you on the vacations that you're hoping to go on? Who is it that you can have to your place to enjoy the things that you have a chance to enjoy? How is it that love for God and love for others can govern the wealth and the things that you have? Solomon, his wealth was tremendous. Job, his wealth was tremendous. Jesus' teachings, right on target as well. And here's the question for me. It's not about should I get rid of things or should I get more things. It's really a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And this is why Q writes in Ecclesiastes 5.8, whoever loves money never has money enough. This is why Jesus says this is how it'll be for those who are not rich toward God, who, have a, who are missing it in their heart. Here's my, my concern and then my hope. My concern is that we will live a life that will be a little unreflective in our accumulating of things and that your life will end up being a waste in that regard. That you will have accumulated many things, that you will live a life of relative ease. And at the end of it, we're going to look and say, man, is that it? <laughs> is that it? Is it the rich farmer, the rich plantation owner who stored up things for themselves so they didn't have to worry about the future? Or is it this question of how does my love for God and love for others govern my wealth so that the things that God has given me I can use not just for my benefit but for the benefit both of God and for those people around me. It's a tremendous, tremendous question to ask and a difficult one to ask but one I believe that if asked will help cut to the issue of what is it that God wants to use me for and how is it that he wants to use the things that he's entrusted to me. A world in which Christians have no wealth accumulation I think is imbalanced. A world in which Christians use only their wealth on themselves is also imbalanced. And here's the challenging question. How does love govern my stuff? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity to work on this topic and this issue of wealth accumulation and uh, how we perceive and see our money. And I... I pray that you would continue to drive home in our hearts the, the need we have to come back to our love for you as the driving force behind what we do. It is so tempting to go to work, to plan a business, to innovate and create, and then come to worship on a Sunday disconnected from the things that we do in the week. And yet that is an expression, as we know, of our life with you. So in the work of our hands, in the things that we accumulate, I pray that you would give us courage to ask this question, how does love govern my wealth? How does my love for my God and my love for people around me help me make good decisions about how my resources should be spent? And I pray that it would teach us, lead us, and give us a heart of wisdom that we may live a life that is fully committed to you that is growing in our obedience and love for you. I pray that you would give us courage to do what we know that we need to do. We know that you are good and heavenly Father who loves us no matter what. I pray that you continue to remind us of your great care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.